Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. As we confront the horrific events of recent weeks, the writings of James Baldwin seem all the more prophetic. Remember This House is an unfinished work by James Baldwin, that explores what it means to be black through the assassinations of the author's colleagues and friends, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Baldwin's text inspired filmmaker Raoul Peck to create the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro which received an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary. Today, we'll listen back to my 2017 interview with Raoul Peck. In observance of Pride Month, a conversation with Tara Coit, the author of Real Talk about LGBTQIAP. First... Local musicians invite you to virtual performances at home. The Rialto Homegrown Artists series showcases local talent and offers hope and support to the Atlanta community during these difficult times. Every Thursday at noon, there's a variety of free, short, virtual performances from the homes of local artists. Nathan Brown is the Rialto stage manager and oversees the initiative. He joins us now via Zoom along with singer-songwriter Bridget Lean. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. What inspired the Rialto's Homegrown Artists series? Well, I think, obviously, we were not able to do any sort of audience events during these times. And so we just really wanted to come up with some way to still engage the community as well as maybe engage our audiences as well as maybe give a, something for artists a way, a platform for them to present themselves during this time. And we wanted to keep it uh, local because we felt like 
we there's just such a plethora of local musicians and although the real alto does have some local artist initiatives we felt like this was a good way to sort of amp that up how do you go about selecting the artists well i've been a promoter in atlanta for a long time outside of the rialto and i know know a lot of people who've performed and have seen a lot of performances and i think the first step in this first wave was choosing people who i knew were capable of putting on solo performances obviously a lot of these people can't get together with others during this time and people who i felt like would be a good fit i think that eventually the word might spread and and we'll accept submissions for now it's a little bit curated of course but i think that's the way all of these things start so how many artists will be in this series well i it's my hope that this series continues so i couldn't say i know that we have about 10 more submissions that are going to be scheduled and uh, hopefully that'll grow Bridget, how did you become involved with this series? Well, actually, prior to the pandemic, I was working as a stagehand at the Rialto um, as one of my many side jobs because musicians tend to have quite a few of those. So I know Nathan, and we've talked about my music before, and we've shared each other's music with each other, and. he was gracious enough to reach out and ask me if i wanted to be a part of it how would you describe your genre i would call it well the broad genre is singer songwriter i would call it contemporary folk i especially enjoyed hearing that song you wrote for your sister oh thank you i'm glad you enjoyed it i like to write music that is calming and peaceful and shares hope I don't ask where the wind blew when I see how the grass is lying and just the same about the other songs. Yeah, so that's the first song that I performed and I wrote it for my sister and it's really just kind of a thank you to people who help us through difficult times. The next song that I perform is called Maybe I'm Crazy and I wrote it about potentially controversially I had a really interesting conversation with somebody about swingers and just not understanding certain ways different people interact with their partners. So that song's about, you know, I've heard rumors and such, but I still love you. I hear pain walking round. Someone else is mainstream. Strangers of adventure. Drum stories down in my Honey, I hear a 
Something you have struggled with. Yes. Yeah. I think personally, I started really writing in order to sort through thoughts and emotions and things that are confusing. And everybody makes music for different reasons. But I think my main reason for making music has been to be there with people and basically just to share my personal experiences because our experiences are so universal. If I've gone through something, there's the guaranteed notion that at least a thousand other people have gone through it. I know one thing God can say On this waning moon Orion's belt is crying Tears of light and fire Three sisters look to you Matter in the end, you know. 
I read that since the coronavirus outbreak, you've switched gears from singing to carpentry. <laughs> yes. Would you, um, would you tell us how that's going? Yeah, I actually, so my father is a carpenter and I've been doing carpentry since I was about, I don't know, 14, whenever he decided I was old enough to work with something besides sandpaper. I used to have a business where I would build custom furniture and then I kind of, I steered away from it because I think you can only really become an expert in so many things. And I would be sanding for five hours and thinking about playing guitar. (laughs) I figured, why don't I just play guitar? But desperate times, sometimes you have to go back to things that you don't particularly love, but have. And I'm really grateful that I have, you know, knowledge in a craft that can help me through times like this. What kind of works have you built or created since the pandemic? I've built a few sound insulation panels and some acoustic diffusers, as well as a recording desk and a coffee table. Wow. On May 8th? I saw that you performed in front of a virtual crowd. What's it like to perform for an audience that isn't in the same room with you? Well, actually, I haven't really been performing live for very long. So in today's world, I think artists are somewhat used to performing virtually. You know, we post short videos of our performances on Instagram or YouTube. But that was the first, and sometimes I even will go on Instagram and like practice live and stuff. But I would say the the strangest thing about it was staying on focus. I feel like when there's nobody there, it was easier to just kind of get lost in conversation with Jason, Jason Waller. He owns Waller's Coffee Shop where we had the virtual performance. So it was also like, wow, I hadn't really seen somebody besides my immediate group in so long. It was easy to get on a trail of just talking, but it was really cool. People could still interact and ask questions and request songs. And it was just nice to be playing music with somebody. I'll bet. Nathan, you mentioned that you hope this series will continue. Do you think it's something that the Rialto would continue after people are able to return to the venue for live performance? Well, that's what I'm hoping. I, we haven't really discussed it. We're so early into this right now. And as a stage manager, my job is really, really busy already when we get back into things. I've been handling the production of this so far. So my goal is to set a template for the way that this is handled so that maybe someone can come in, step in, once I resume my duties and carry on with it, take over. Rialto stage manager Nathan Brown oversees the Rialto's Homegrown Artists series. He was joined by Atlanta singer-songwriter Bridget Lean. Her virtual performance will take place tomorrow at noon. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. James Baldwin continues to be a touchstone of race relations. And as we confront the horrific events of recent weeks, Baldwin's writings seem all the more prophetic. He has inspired activists, artists, intellects, and those on the quest for civil rights in the United States. Reading James Baldwin's work was transformative for the Haitian-born filmmaker Raoul Peck. His documentary on Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro, was released in 2017 and received an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary that year. The film feels like an essay. Instead of interviews with experts, Baldwin's own words from an unfinished manuscript titled, Remember This House, Guide the Structure. When I spoke with Raoul Peck in 2017, he talked about his deep personal connection with the writer. My story started when I discovered Baldwin myself as a young man and coming out of my teenager's year. And uh, somebody gave me The Fire Next Time, and, and that book basically changed my life. I started to understand better in what world I was living and who I was and how I had to, to fight for being the, the man I became. So Baldwin was one of the rare voices at the time to whom I could relate to. And then he never left me. I, I, I grew up with him. Uh, he structured uh, my brain and my mind the way I am today. So when I decided to make a project uh, not so much on him, I, I was not interested in the biography, but I, I wanted to put his words in the forefront again mm. and to, to make sure that this new generation will able to do something with it the way it had done something for me. The book came in the process of, of the research and trying different forms and approach. Uh, I, I tried to, you know, I, re- I wrote a, a treatment. Uh, I wrote, worked with another author together to try to come up with a film, a narrative, and then it became a mixed form between narrative and documentary. Until one day, you know, Gloria Carifas Mott, James Baldwin's younger sister, uh, in our numerous exchanges and, and, and uh, conversation, gave me those pages to remember this house. And then what he did for me, suddenly there was an, an opening door, an opening 
a way to go into that story mm-hmm. and, and to make it a very specific, very original approach. In the text, which follows in a linear fashion the deaths of three of Baldwin's friends and fellow intellects, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King, the documentary and Baldwin emphasize how young they all were. Not one of them reached the age of 40. Is that something people forget? Yes, yes, that's, that's a tragedy. Because what he says is not only that they die young, but it's also he, it took out most of the leadership of the movement. It took out all the important voices that were guiding us, that were the forefather of the movement, and that deprive us of their heritage somehow. That's the most dramatic aspect of it. They didn't even came to a place where they, you know, they could even uh, uh, write about their time and their sacrifice. They were killed before. Baldwin considered himself a witness. Would you talk about that meaning of... Well, as many uh, artists have gone through that, you know, the, the, uh, in particular, if you are an engaged artist, where, you know, it's about, you know, what your artistry is not just because you wanted to be an artist or your artistry is because you want to be engaged in your society, in your community. But as such, it, there was always the discussion about, you know, are you making art or, or are you making politics? And you were, you know, there is no single answer to that. It's always a back and forth. And, and Baldwin was always in that total contradiction, you know, of being, you know, an actor or being a witness. And in fact, he did both. In order to be a witness, you had to be there. Mm-hmm. That means you have to be, you can't just be there and not doing anything. So somehow he had managed to be both and go through it, or at least to be very close to the fire and and be very close to the people in the middle of the fire. And and I think he, when we look back at his whole body of work, we can see that he has been a master of that. And what he's leaving behind are incredible words that, that will help uh, forever to us to understand this country. And Baldwin has become a touchstone in recent years with the spotlight on police brutality we've seen too much of and Black Lives Matter. Why did you want to highlight his voice now? Uh, well, again, it's it's not that I decided now. It, it depends when you mean now, but don't forget I started the process 10 years ago. What I felt 10 years ago was exactly what Baldwin felt 40, 50 years ago. That touches the very uh, fundamental question of the film. Did anything really change since then? So my motivation to do the film and to go back to Baldwin was because I already felt that we were still in the same framework, in the same 
question that we were asking again and again, uh, what you call police brutality. In the film, there is a photo of Medgar Evers demonstrating with a shield in front of him saying, stop police brutality. That was almost 60 years ago. And today we are still having demonstration with the same type of, of shield. So that's the, the crazy question, that the crazy reality we are in. And, and that's why, you know, going back to Baldwin is going back to the fundamentals, to the real instrument of analysis to see that what is superficial, what is, you know, important and structural. You know, that's what we need to ask ourselves each time. Baldwin helps you see through this incredible haze, this big cloud that is in front of you uh, all the time. And I do hope, you know, Baldwin can help this present, uh, you know, generation to take a little bit distance and see, you know, and learn to see what is essential and what is superficial. Raoul Peck, you said that James Baldwin gave you your voice and gave you the words. Thank you for giving us this film. Thank you very much for this conversation. Filmmaker Raoul Peck discussing his documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. It's available to stream on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and YouTube. The film has a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and received an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary three years ago. Up next, an Oscar-winning animated film. Children's books are often full of larger-than-life characters and fantastic scenarios. The book Hair Love by Matthew Cherry finds both of those in a father and in a little girl's hair. The story begins with a young black girl introducing herself, saying, My name is Zuri, and I have hair that has a mind of its own. The book is based on a short animated film, also written by Matthew Cherry, with illustrations by Vashti Harrison. Earlier this year, Hair Love won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short. Here's the filmmaker-author, along with the illustrator. I reached out to Vashti through Instagram, through the DM, and I was like, hey, I know you don't know me from a can of paint, but I also know this mutual friend, and, you know, I... I have this idea about doing a short film about a father trying to learn how to do his daughter's hair for the first time, and the hair gets a mind of its own. And, um, you know, I didn't know if you had any time available to kind of help me, you know, with some with some artwork. And, you know, luckily she was down. So the first tweet that I sent out about it was just like, guy, I want you guys to meet Zuri. And it was just an image, uh, a solo image that she did. And it just went so viral. It, like, had, ended up getting, like, 50,000 likes, like, 30,000, 40,000 retweets. And... It was then I was like, oh, my God, like, this is going to be something really special because I haven't even met the dad yet or or even know what the story is. And, um, you know, that's the power of her artwork. She just is so authentic. It's so it's done in a way that I've never really seen it done in that 
she just represents like kids and adults and characters in such a unique way and it just has so much life and so much appeal to it and um yeah it was the, at that moment i knew we had something special i don't remember the pitch exactly but <laughs> i think really all he had to say was animated short film natural hair and i already knew what i needed to do i thought it would be a good opportunity to let people know that I'm interested in the animation world because I, I've been illustrating and writing children's books for a couple of years and I thought this would be a good opportunity. So I kind of knew exactly what we needed to do. Regardless of what the film would be, I knew that this kind of visual development work needed to catch viewers, catch people on social media, the, you know, the kinds of people that are swiping, swiping, swiping really quickly. And I wanted to catch them off guard and, and create something that looked like it could have just come straight out of like a Disney Pixar studio because we never get to see black girls in that form. I mean, there's only a handful of black girl characters that that have been rendered in 3D animation before. And Mm -hmm. I knew that people would be engaged in this and want to see more of it. So it didn't take a lot of direction. We really wanted to be specific, particularly with the dad. So, you know, there was this kind of evolution, like when we did the Kickstarter campaign, you know, he was kind of like a little safer. He was, the, the description that I gave her was a gentle giant. And so, you know, he had these locks, he had these really broad shoulders. And, um, you know, he like, looked like he probably was like 40, you know, 45 years old. And when we had, when we did the, when we ended up getting the book deal, um, you know, our, our editor and the head of Coquila Books, who we ended up going with, she was just so amazing, and she just is all about representation and authenticity. And, you know, I remember having a conversation with my manager, like, you know, we should really try to push this thing. 40-year-old dads, you know, that that have yeah, that look safe, you know. I mean, they don't really have the same issues that, you know, young fathers have that have tattoos, that have long locks, you know, that wear the slide flip-flops with the socks. We just really wanted to represent for people that just really can try to combat stereotypes in the best way that we could. And, you know, to have a father with an arm sleeve tattoo and a children's book and, you know, and it's normal, like, it's so amazing to me. Like, that blows my mind every time. Matthew worked really closely with Namrata, the editor, and and I worked really closely with Jasmine, our art director. And so at that point, our job is to bring that story to life. So it's not an animated film anymore. This is a picture book. So our job then was to figure out how to make this feel special and make it feel like it's something completely different. Like at that point, I was really thinking about the reader. They put a lot of thoughtfulness into creating a story that would resonate between fathers and daughters, but also like it's a story about love. It's about this relationship between someone who cares so much for someone else to try to do things that you know you're not very good at. Like Vashti was saying, you know, they're, they're a very similar story. You know, I think that was probably the most helpful part of the process is that, you know, we did have like a clear, a fairly clear narrative of what happens and what the kind of order of the story is. But, you know, the world in the short film was a little bit more magical. You know, we wanted the book to be a little bit more grounded so that kids reading it would be able to relate to it a little bit more. But, you know, in the short film, her hair actually does have a mind of her own. It, you know, the dad is trying to do it and it moves out the way. She sees a hairstyle on a hair vlog and she imagines herself in it and then she actually like becomes a superhero and flies away. So, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, the process has been very similar in a lot of ways in that, you know, storytelling is storytelling. You want to evoke emotion and you want to be authentic. 
But then it's been very different in that, you know, animation is such a tedious process. You know, with indie filmmaking, you could just go in a room and kind of shoot it as is, and then you move on. But with animation, you have to pick the style of desk, why the, what color are the walls. Um, you know, every single detail is so meticulous, and it just is a longer process. But, you know, I've been enjoying every step of the way, and, you know, I look forward to doing more. Hair Love won this year's Oscar for Best Animated Short Film. In her book, Real Talk about LGBTQIAP, author Tara Coit asks questions about human sexuality that many might want to ask. Through interviews with individuals from all walks of life, the book provides thoughtful and insightful answers. Tara Coit spoke with me last summer about her book, which she calls A Pursuit of the Heart. It hurts my heart when I see elected officials, uh, religious leaders, and other people condemning someone because of their sexuality or saying that you are not allowed to be attracted to someone of the same sex or you can't come to our church or you can't live in this place or receive medical care because you're transgender. I mean, how can we treat another human being that way? How can we deny another human being the exact things that we say we cherish for ourselves? And part of that was my motivation to understand why we, why do we treat people this way? Why do we think and behave the way we do when we say that everybody should have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So compassion, empathy, humanity is really at the heart of this book because you state at the beginning, you are heterosexual. You are not dealing with any of the problems or crises that many of the people you write about have faced. And yet you wanted to embark on this project. Yeah, one of the, well, the first question that most people ask me is why? Why are you doing this? One reason certainly is that I'm a writer and I like to write about things that are interesting to me. I like to write about things that I think need more discussion and things that I think can help make us better people, make create a better society and a better world. And certainly this topic, real talk about LGBTQIAP, hit all of those marks. Would you share the story about the wisdom in your mom's Christmas card? This is part of the card that my mom sent me maybe two two years ago uh, for Christmas. Dear daughter, my wish for you is that you'll always know a little bit more today than you knew yesterday about life, about yourself, about what you can do and create in this world. And when I read that, I mean, it hit me that, okay, I have to, that's what I'm doing. And it made me cry. One of the many times that I've cried (laughs) in the process of writing this book. And I don't think of myself as a very emotionally expressive person, but I have cried more in the past five years of writing this book, I think, than I've cried in my whole life of 50 plus years. 
There are a lot of heartbreaking stories. <gasps> yes. And there's also reconciliation that you write about. That's very understandable. Your mother set examples early on. How old were you when her friend Tony got you thinking about <laughs> identity? Well, my mother uh, was a nurse, a registered nurse. She worked in the operating room, and we got to meet a lot of her uh, co-workers. And the first time I met Tony, Tony was a man, six foot four, tall African American man, handsome. The next time I met Tony, Tony appeared as a woman. And so, of course, I was probably somewhere around 10, maybe. Of course, this was something interesting, and I had lots of questions for her. Uh, my mother has always been pretty honest when it comes to anything biological, and so she explained that Tony thought she was a woman and not a man and was going through this process to transition, and she explained surgery and hormones and having to go to the psychologist before uh, Tony could have surgery, and I was satisfied and got up and walked away. You write that your hope is to give faces and heartbeats to the real people behind yes. the letters LGBTQIAP. Tara, how does the structure of the book achieve that goal? The way the book is set up is I ask questions, questions that many of us have, and I use a combination of real people, real voices, to answer those questions. In addition to research, I rely on organizations like Georgia Equality and GLAD and PFLAG, the Pew Research Center, American Psychologists Association, and then some of the voices are some um, very prominent people here in Atlanta, the late Joan Garner, Philip Rafshoon, uh, Dr. Eric Wright at uh, Georgia State University, Ryan Romerman at the LGBTQ Institute. Real Talk has a chapter that provides an entire glossary of terms such as biological sex, gender, gender identity, cisgender, and sexuality. Who are your targeted readers? My reader, from a general perspective, is the person who wants to understand more. The person who says, well, I don't know what these terms mean. I don't know what our different sexualities or gender identities mean, and I want to learn more. I like the story you tell about your ma, dear, <laughs> as it relates to why heterosexuals are called straight. Could you tell us about ma, dear's <laughs> take on that? Well, I wondered why. Where did this term come from, straight? Um, and it made me think back to a, a nice, fond memory of my grandmother who would visit every summer or we would visit her. and. The one thing that we did was watch her soap operas. Most of the things we watched, there would always be someone who wasn't a very nice person or who was trying to rob someone or was a murderer. And she would always say, oh, watch out for him. He's crooked. That guy is crooked. And I thought, huh, so crooked means someone who is bad, 
who is trying to do something bad. And I wonder, well, are we trying to say that people who aren't straight are crooked? Um, so it was just a, a nice way to bring me into that conversation about what do we mean by straight? And what are we trying to suggest about people who aren't straight? Why are there so many letters in the acronym LGBTQIAP? I think it's about identity. Everybody wants to be identified. And initially, everybody was lumped under the gay identity. Didn't matter what sexuality or gender identity they were. And as time has progressed and more people have become um, vocal about their identity and accepting of their identity, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, no, that's, that's not who I am. I have this particular identity. I'm bisexual or I'm pansexual or I'm asexual. Um, so I think it's about identity and I think we should um, recognize that it's worth it. It's worth allowing everyone to be seen and heard. The book provides historical context for the terminology. Would you tell us about the evolution of the word queer? Queer has had several different meanings. Uh, currently, some people use it to describe their sexuality or gender identity. Some people use it as an umbrella term for everything LGBTQIAP. Uh, some people don't use it at all. But I was able to trace back to the 1500s, um, the first time that there was a use of the word queer, and then again popping up again in the 1800s. But it was referring to something like spoiled, spoiled food. And then somewhere along the way, it began to morph to refer to a person. Maybe they're behaving strangely or differently. It was identified, started to be used towards men who maybe were effeminate and it's never left us, and it continues to morph and change the meaning. But to go back centuries and originally to have been associated with uh, spoiled food, <laughs> I mean, it, it just brings home the power of these pejorative meanings. Words are, um, words are certainly powerful, and they change with meaning over time and certainly when we talk about the Bible that's a whole nother um, discussion about words and meanings of things being changed and distorted but I find it all very interesting. One question you raise that I found striking is why are we so deeply concerned about whom other people have sexual intercourse and yeah. relationships with. <laughs> I've talked to many people. Some psychologists suggest that it's a way to deflect from our own thoughts or sexuality. And when you think about it, certainly here in America and Western civilization, sex is, we have a love-hate relationship with it, and we think of it as dirty, although it's something we like and we want. And so it's easier to talk about 
other people's sex, other people's relationships than it is to talk about our own because then I, I don't have to seriously talk about sex and it's easier or I can laugh about it um, or I can point the finger at someone and say, well, they're not a good person and maybe that makes me feel better about who I am or what I'm doing. Asking about that preoccupation or even why it should register about who's having sex with whom leads to your discussion of violence against people who are LGBTQIAP. As with other forms of prejudice, it's incomprehensible why people who are not inciting violence, who are not provoking mm -hmm. violence toward anyone else, are victims of it themselves. A part of me says I don't want to understand it, um, but I do think it's important for us to ask why do we care so much that to the point of becoming violent, to the point of beating people, killing people, creating laws to keep them from adopting children or getting or keeping a job. Why does our lack of understanding or dislike of who someone is move to this point that we feel like we have to make them suffer? And that, because that's what it is. We are making people suffer. Uh, we're punishing them for being who they are, who they naturally are. It is natural. And part of it, I think, is fear, uh, certainly lack of understanding, which is why I wrote this book it, in hopes that some people will try to understand and then realize that, well, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have the right to try and make someone be who I want them to be. And I don't have the right to punish someone for being who they are, especially when who they are, as you said, Lois, it's not hurting anyone. You know, my friend Tiffany and her wife being married, having a family, going to work, being active members of their community, that does not hurt anyone. So let's let them be. Indeed. How has the recent use of pronouns furthered awareness of gender identity? This was something new to me a few years ago as well. So use of pronouns, I would be she, her, as would you. Um, your husband would be he, him. But then there are people who, a person who may be non-binary or queer would not want to use those pronouns. So maybe they would say, I would prefer that you say they because I don't identify as he or her. So then there's they. And by at least recognizing that for a person um, and giving them that, allowing them to be called or referred to what they want to be referred or in a way they want to be referred is simple respect, I think. Chapter 13 was the most engrossing for me, I think. It's titled The Holy Word, <laughs> The Holy Word and Religion. This must have been one of the more time-consuming portions of your research. Absolutely. 
It was also the most rewarding, I want to say. I was raised United Methodist Church. I was educated in Catholic schools from kindergarten through college. And I just assume that if the priest or the pastor said it, it must be right. And I never looked it up. And when I decided to write this book, I said, well, I got to look it up. And what I found was amazing to me, but it also kind of gave me some relief because I did not see the God and some of the hatred. And I don't want to know that God that they're talking about. And ultimately, so uplifting in terms of the takeaway one has from either Bible. You go into great detail in terms of translations and a misappropriation Mm -hmm. of words. This was also thought-provoking. How long did this part of the book take you? I mean, you were talking with priests, rabbis, theologians, ministers. Well, the whole process of writing the book took almost five years, and this was certainly one of the first things I started, and I kept going back to this chapter. But you quote chapter and verse, literally (laughs) interpreting and demonstrating that Jesus never said that. Hebrew Bible never said that. The claim that God destroyed Sodom because of homosexuality false. Right. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. And I don't want anybody just to take my word for it. There are religious scholars, biblical scholars, Old and New Testament, people who studied the languages that the Bible has been written in, the original languages, not English, um, and went back and said, well, this is the word that was used then And it doesn't mean homosexual. I mean, because homosexual and there's someone else who's writing another book about um, the Bible specifically in homosexuality. Homosexual, the word, was not introduced into the Bible until 1946, the English version. So homosexuality was a mid-20th century reference. I like this quote of yours. We should ask how it benefits faith leaders to manufacture a reason that God did not offer. You're taking on some heavy-duty stuff here, Tara. I feel like it has to be done. It has to be done, especially when there's ample proof that they are distorting their God's word. I'm not challenging anyone's religion, but I am challenging what we're assigning to God, Jesus, or whoever. And I I say this among my friends and say, you need to stop lying on Jesus. Jesus did not say this. Jesus did preached love according to the Bible. So if you're telling me that Jesus hates somebody because of their sexuality, you're lying. The book concludes with guidance for loved ones. Was this topic among the most important for you when you began the project? Yes, because there are too many children and teens who 
run away from home, who hurt themselves, or who attempt suicide and unfortunately are successful because they don't feel accepted. Mental health professionals show that a child who doesn't receive support from their family, their immediate family, has a much greater chance of doing one of those things, leaving home, trying to hurt themselves, um, trying to commit suicide. So it was important for me to try to help parents and family members gain some understanding and realize how important, even if you don't understand, it's important to let your child know that you love them. What surprised you most in this research? Several things, aside from what I learned about what's in the Bible, discovering that doctors, scientists, researchers say that there is no indication that other sexualities haven't always existed among humans. We've grown up thinking or led our lives thinking that heterosexuality is the norm and that it's the only thing that's existed, but they say it's very likely that homosexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality have always been a part of the human experience. Tara Coit is the author of Real Talk about LGBTQIAP. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now a podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.